0: Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. So my, my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for joining us today. Uh, as we get started, I want to make a note that this is the time where you can give your tithes and offerings. Uh, if you're online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash give. If you're here, you can give online as well. However, if you'd like to give as you exit, you are absolutely welcome to do so. We'll have people ready to receive your offerings and connection cards from you as you leave. Now today we are continuing our study in the book of Acts and as you can see that the title of today's sermon is God-Centered Worship. God-Centered Worship. What we do here in terms of proclaiming the good news of the scriptures, what we do here in terms of singing songs and gathering together and praying is ultimately about God. It's not about us and our preferences. It's not about us and our desires. It's about God and God alone. Yet we live in a world We live in a culture that wants nothing to do with this idea of God. We live in a world and a culture that values things that say, hey, I can have value, meaning, and significance without the divine, without the holy, righteous God interceding in my world. I don't need God. I've grown beyond God. Yet we see that our world currently is obsessed with things like peace, right isn't that one of the cries we hear from people that we want peace in this world, we want peace in America, we want peace in the Middle East, we want peace between Israel and Palestine, we want peace wherever it can be found. Our world is concerned about justice. That we want justice wherever it can be found, right? We want justice between different ethnic groups. We want justice to be served from past wrongs. We want things to be made right. We have a society that's concerned and obsessed with purity, right? Not sexual purity because you're free to be who you want to be and do what you want to do, but we're concerned about free-range, grass-fed beef. We want organic, non-GMO vegetables. We want everything that comes into our body to be pure and righteous. We have a culture that's obsessed with these things and is seeking what I would submit to you. They're seeking the divine. They're trying to make the center of their lives themselves. Yet, I believe as you talk to people who are in this culture today, one of the things that you recognize is that what they're doing, what they're trying to do, is they're seeking after something that is greater than themselves. You see, they're pursuing something to give them value and meaning in this life. And our culture believes that if you just get enough things right in terms of justice, we will now have value and significance and meaning. We can make America great again. Everyone's taken that phrase, right? That our world could be made right. We believe that if we just do enough right, we can have peace and all will be happy and satisfied. We believe that if we eat the right vegetables and the right food that we can be made pure inside because when we look at ourselves we recognize the thing that keeps us up at night is that we are not just, we are not at peace, we are not pure. Yet we'll pile these things on top seeking to put a band-aid upon a cancerous wound that needs real healing and restoration. You see, I would submit to you that what our culture is missing is a view of life of worship that is centered on God. What they are missing is a life that is centered and focused on God, that finds that value comes not from what you can take and gain in this world, but what you can give up and receive from the Lord Jesus. I would submit to you today as we look at the book of Acts... Chapter 2, we will see God-centered worship on display. We will see people who are saying to the culture around them, God is everything you've been looking for. God is everything that brings value and meaning to us. God is the one who can change your heart and mind and let you rest at peace, receiving perfect justice so that you might be made pure. If you would, would you stand and read the scriptures with me? We'll be in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perga and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya beyond, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. If you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, today... What we are seeking is You. That I know that perhaps everyone listening who is here, who is watching online, would perhaps not acknowledge that. But what we see, Lord, is that ultimately we're trying to find You. Whether we're looking for You through earthly rituals, whether we're looking for You through religious connotations, Father, whatever it is we're doing, what we need is You and You alone. So today, Father, would You remove the scales from our eyes? Take the blinders off of us and let us see you in your holiness and your righteousness. Let us see you in your purity. Let us see you in your beauty and majesty, Father. So that we might see ourselves in light of you and recognize that we are in desperate need of a Redeemer. Father, let us today see that that Redeemer's name is Jesus Christ that His is the only name that will save and it is through Him that we can find propitiation for our sins. Father, we are thankful for all that You're doing in our lives and in this world. And we're most thankful for You bringing people to Yourself so that we might see, hear, and respond to the glory of Your name and see our lives transformed by the power of the gospel. Father, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So as we begin today, our first point here is that the Spirit empowers us. The Spirit empowers us. Look with me beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. As we look at this, we're picking up from last week that Pastor Brian led us through the last half of chapter 1. And we see that the disciples have gathered together here on Pentecost. Now, perhaps you might remember as we looked through the book of Leviticus, we actually covered the study of Pentecost. We looked at what was happening here. So to give you some understanding, make sure you remind it because there's a lot of stuff in Leviticus. Pentecost is a celebration that occurs 50 days after the Passover. Pentecost is celebrating the Feast of Weeks. And this is a week-long celebration of people of Israel where at the culmination of it, they bring the first fruits of their offering, the first tenth of their offering before the Lord, and give it to Him to say, Lord, where there was no way, you made a way. Why? In reminiscence of the Exodus. You see, that's what Passover is symbolizing and reminding the people of Israel of, hey, do you remember that time where you were slaves in a foreign land? Do you remember that time where I brought plagues and pestilence against the people of Egypt? Will you remember that time where Pharaoh said, literally, over my dead body will I let you go? And while his body's rotting at the bottom of the Red Sea, you celebrate the freedom that has been found. You celebrate the freedom that I've given you. This Passover is celebrating the moment where God told Israel, you are going to go to the promised land. I'll bring the angel of death into the land, and anywhere that the blood of the lamb is smeared on the doorpost, I'll pass over those houses. Now, this is a major celebration because the Passover is really one of the central moments of the faith of Jews. That without the Passover, there is no Jewish faith. That it is a huge moment. And now we have Pentecost, this Feast of Weeks. And in Pentecost, we see that people from around the known world come together to celebrate this moment. That Jews have scattered, they have been sent around the world through various things we see in the Old Testament. And every year, as faithfully as they're able to, they come together to celebrate Pentecost. Now today, we're looking at what I would submit to you would be the last Pentecost. Because we are 50 days in the text after the last Passover where Jesus paid for the debt of sin and shame for all time. Though for the last time sin has been passed over and Jesus has made all things right. And we're now here on the cusp of seeing the last Passover. That is the last moment where the people of Israel will need to gather together to remember the Passover. Because we have a new celebration. Now, in this moment, we have the people, the disciples we see here, gathered together in one place, and then we have verses 2 and 3 that occur. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. As we look at these verses... On the cusp of it, as we get into it, we see that these are some strange verses, if we're honest with each other, right? One of the things we can do is we look at the Bible, we can acknowledge there's some things in there that we just don't have good words to explain, right? And what we see here is that Luke is describing a supernatural event for us with human language. You see, he's trying to explain how incredible it is that a holy God would insert himself into our world... And pour out his power upon us. And so, of course, it would seem strange as we look at this to see that and go, well, what is he actually trying to explain to us? Well, there are two things I think we need to keep in mind as we look at this that I think help us understand what Luke's trying to get across. First and foremost, we have to recognize that Luke is using figurative language, right? That he's using some figurative language to try and explain what's happening. You know, again, we don't really have great words to explain what's going on here, but the key I think we see in here is this idea, this usage of words like like and as. We see that he refers to this sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house. Divided tongues as a fire, right? Luke's trying to use earthly language to explain some things. Really, he's giving an eyewitness account to this miraculous thing that has quite honestly blown his mind. That you can read the all in these verses as he's trying to explain this miraculous move of God, this moment that is resonating through history. I think the best way to read these verses is to actually put yourself in the mindset of people who've actually survived like a natural disaster, for instance. If you've ever seen interviews of people after a hurricane or tornadoes come through, after a massive earthquake, they seem like they don't really understand what just happened, right? Right? I was just sitting here and then all of a sudden I was shaking and I was on the floor and then what? I was sitting here and then my roof has been blown off and a cow sitting beside me in the living room. That they seem inarticulate and it's because they've experienced something that is more powerful than they could ever imagine. And that's what we see Luke experiencing and trying to describe. He's trying to explain, I have seen something that is just so incredible, I don't even know that I have words for That's why he's using figurative language. Now, secondly, we see that this is a supernatural event. Whether Luke's trying to describe perhaps some elements of a vision, and and we know that certainly there are some physical things happening there, we see later on in the scriptures. He's addressing God's power being put on display in the world. What we see is the infinite, a holy, righteous God making himself known in a finite world. That is, people like you and I who really don't have a sense or understanding of the divine, the holy, the righteous. Perhaps the best way I can think to illustrate this is imagine Perry and I playing basketball. I'm not a very talented basketball player as you see by how high I'm standing, right? Not very tall at all. But compared to my son, I've got an over a foot and a half difference just height-wise. He tries to shoot, all I do is this. And he has no chance. In that moment, my son playing basketball against me is like the finite coming up against the infinite. You don't have a chance to walk out unscathed. And in this moment, we see Luke trying to describe a holy, righteous, divine presence of God coming on and being poured out upon His people to empower them for His work and ministry. Now, no matter what we see happening here, we see the disciples, they're experiencing God moving upon them in ways that are reminiscent of the Old Testament. You just go back to chapters like Ezekiel 37. We see God speaking to the valley of dry bones, bringing life to that which was dead. We see that moment as perhaps this is a culmination of that that language there. That God is bringing Israel back. He's redeeming them in a new exodus. He's saying, you were here in captivity to sin. And by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I'm leading you into the promised land through the freedom that I have brought to you. We see this language of fire present throughout the entire Old Testament as well. Just look back at the Exodus passage, right? As we look back at the book of Exodus and we see the people of Israel leave the promised land. What does God leave Egypt going to the promised land? What does he do? They're guided by a pillar of fire. We see him appear as a burning bush before Moses. And Moses rightfully goes, what's this? And God speaks out of that fire to say to him, this is what I've called you to do. We even see this language used in Isaiah 6, referencing the burning coal that the cherubim uses to singe Isaiah's mouth. As he's proclaiming, who is worthy? Who will go? Send me, Lord, if I am worthy. What we see is that this is reminiscent of the Old Testament, specifically because Luke is trying to make a point. God is trying to make a point more importantly than Luke. He's trying to illustrate that the divine is working its way into this world. You see, one of the things that we have to wrestle with in this secular world is that this world will de- deny any element of the divine, of the holy, of the transcendent. If you speak to people and you begin to talk about things like miracles, which is what we see here, they scoff and mock you, just as we see in verse 13. When you speak to people of things that bring value, that are not found on this earth, they deny it. And sometimes what we are left with in our witnessing efforts is to just simply say, you might disagree for why the reason why I've changed, but you cannot deny the fact that I have been changed, that I've been redeemed. We see that it takes literal power from heaven to come in and to change a human heart. We'll see that in the next few verses. Now, what's the result of this miraculous moment? We've got this rushing wind coming in. I I imagine it's kind of like the sound of a train coming through. If you've ever been near one, you hear that ominous dum-dum-dum-dum. Right? I'm a terrible train. But you hear it coming through, blowing through, and you know something is coming. There's this miraculous moment of things like fire floating upon them. What's the result of this? What happens? Or in verse 4, we see precisely what happens for the disciples. Verse 4 says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we see verse 4, and, and it's very clear that the result of this moment is they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak other tongues. Now, there's a lot going on here, and I recognize that there are some different interpretations of this passage. What I'm going to give you is what we believe as a Baptist church, this is what a typical Baptist doctrine is. There are other denominations that think different things, and that's okay. This is what we believe as a faith family. Now we see this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we need to address is this is not the moment that they are being saved. We see actually in John chapter 20, Jesus speaks to them, and he breathes upon them, and he gives them the Holy Spirit then that we see that redemption has come after His death, burial, and resurrection, that they are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They have been believers. The Spirit has come upon them. They are repentant, regenerate believers of God several chapters earlier. Now, in that moment, this moment in particular, this is the receiving of power from the Spirit to carry out Jesus' command to witness. Remember, all the way in chapter 1 right here as we were addressing this, He said, I'm going to give you power... To be witnesses. This is that power he's bringing. Now, we look at this and we think, well, does this mean that there's things like the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do we believe things like that? No, we don't believe those things, though certainly other denominations do. What we see here, rather, is that this is the beginning of the church as we know it. And their experience right here is different than the rest of the church that we see throughout history. You see, by it occurring this way, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he's able to mark a dividing line in history of the old has passed away, the new has come. That this moment is inaugurating the new covenant and saying, this is when the church has begun, this is when my kingdom is now expanding forth from here. Now, as we look at that, keeping that in mind, a second thing we need to understand about this filling is that he's not filling them up like they're a cheap gas tank, okay? They're not getting a spiritual top off. I was that quarter of a tank. Now I'm full. No, this is not what he's referencing. Rather, he's addressing this idea of being filled that that really can be best translated as empowered for service, empowered for service. And we see that idea filled throughout the book of Acts and it's always used in context with witnessing. I think that it's Ironic, as I've said before, just a few short weeks ago, that we pray so frequently for God's power and presence to be made known, yet what the book of Acts shows us is that I will give you this power if you will get up off your rear end and proclaim that I am the Lord Almighty. That if you want to experience His presence, you might want to proclaim that I am indeed here living and active in this world. Yet so often we sit back passively saying, God, I hope you show up. And God says, I hope that I'm invited. And as we look at this, we recognize this power has a direct connection to witnessing. That if what we're doing is not about making the name of Jesus made known, he's not going to show up because it's not his party. You see, what it's showing us here is is not that the disciples are lacking Something in their spiritual walk. But rather it's showing God's desire for the gospel to go forth to the ends of the earth. God is doing something miraculous during the time of Pentecost when the nations have come to Israel. You don't have to go to them at this moment because I've brought them all here. Representatives from every known tongue. Those verses that I read earlier as we look in the next section. That long list of places and people, you, you glazed, your eyes glazed over there. You weren't paying attention. That's okay. It's a long list. But here's what it actually means. If you look back that, you can chart these on a map. Okay. If you look back at the ancient Roman Empire, the world that they're living in, representatives from all parts of the known world at that time are there. Every stretch of what we would know of people at that time is represented. Now, certainly it's not the entirety of the whole world, right? That they haven't gone very far outside of the Middle East, right, at this point in terms of the Roman Empire and such. But as Luke is writing to the Jewish people, he's saying, Hey, everywhere that there is a Jewish believer, there's representation here, right now. See, God is doing this in a significant way so that His witness, His glory will be made known. Now there's something else that's happening here that they begin to speak in tongues and this one is again rather controversial depending upon the denomination that you've been in or are a part of. You see this language of tongues that uses the word glossa in the Greek. That You don't need to know that beyond that it can be used to perhaps mean a heavenly language that requires an interpreter. We see Paul use it in that way in 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter of love, right? If you speak the language of the heavens, of the angels, right? But have not love, it's meaningless and worthless. He uses it in that way in 1 Corinthians 13. Yet here in the context it's used, he's speaking to human languages. Simply put, the disciples are speaking earthly languages that they don't know in order for the gospel to reach people far from God that what we see happening is that these are normal Galileans who really know Hebrew, they know Greek, and they know Aramaic. That is it. And that means they are perhaps really well educated. There are people represented from Asia, from Africa, from as far as perhaps Europe. Languages that they couldn't know. And so as the Spirit fills them in this miraculous moment to bring the church into being, they begin to speak these known languages. Now we'll see later on in the passage again that we have people from all over the world. And there's a reason why God does it this way. So as we see here, the Spirit empowers us. It brings meaning and significance to us. It changes who we are. Now, as a result of that change, we have to do something, right? God didn't just perform this miraculous moment for them to say, that's great, let's go to Golden Corral after this. What he did here is that he brought power for a specific purpose. You see, that specific purpose was for worship. You see, the Spirit calls us to worship. The Spirit calls us to worship. That's our second point here. I'm going to use this quote that I'm about to say over and over and over during our time together. It's from John Piper. I said it a few weeks ago, but this is really perhaps the the key statement I think we can find in the book of Acts. You see, Pastor John Piper says, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. You see, God sent the power of the Holy Spirit upon his people so that worship can exist where it previously did not. God sent this power of the Holy Spirit upon His people so that worship could exist where it previously did not. You see, we don't have access to this power so we can have a great Bible study or Sunday school time. We don't have access to this power so that we have an enjoyable fellowship meal. We don't have access to this power so that we can sing songs that we like. We don't have access to this power so that we can just proclaim a good message. No, we have access to this power for one reason and one reason only, so that worship can begin to exist where it did not. We have power for one thing and one thing as only, and that is so that the gospel can transform human life. We have power so that the gospel can go forth and change the human heart and make us live. You see, the point of this power, the presence of God, the filling of the Holy Spirit, is not so that we sing a few songs and walk out putting something on Instagram about how holy we are. The point is that we proclaim the good news of a man who died upon the cross for our sin and shame so that we may have life eternal. If you're here for any other reason than that, repent of your sin, Satan. There is no other purpose for us to gather together. There is no song we sing that is holier than God and His glory. There is no part of our building or what we do that is greater than God and His glory. Everything we do exists for God and His kingdom and His glory. I said this to Brother Fred just this past Friday and I'm going to get myself in trouble and it's fine. Fred's got my back. What I said was, if it would take our congregation dying and closing our doors for the gospel to run unhindered in our community and awaken souls to the good of God, then kill us tomorrow. Take us today, in fact. That the point of why we exist is so that the gospel may transform lives, and anything we put above that is an idol. I don't care how long you've sat in that seat. I don't care where your mama went to church here. What matters is Jesus and Jesus alone. Anything else is an idol from hell itself. You see, we see the Spirit of God move upon His people. And what happens? Worship happens. Look with me at verse 5. In verse 5 it reads, Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, that sound of the Holy Spirit rushing in, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. You see, we've said that the Pentecost, this time of God bringing his nations together was so that he could see the gospel go forth. And we see that there are people here from every nation. There are Jews who are living here in Jerusalem who have come from all over the world. And they hear this sound of the Holy Spirit entering in and they say, like all of us, what's happening over here? And they come to see what's going on. And right now they're confused because they're from around the world and they're hearing praises about God in their own language. This would be like you or I being dropped in the middle of a town square in Mexico City, Mexico. And all around us, what we hear are people speaking Spanish. And you and I don't know very much Spanish. And in the midst of this, we hear someone say, Hey, how are you? What can I do for you today? And like anyone, we turn. Where is that? There's, there's I understood that. There's someone speaking. And we hear that voice again, and we go to see because we are shocked that someone speaks our language. So they've gathered together, and they're saying, what is going on? We have people talking about this divine being, this transcendent God, this God who entered the world and died for sins, who's revived himself, who's raised himself from the dead and sits on the throne. What are they talking about? You see, the next few verses, 7 through 10, show us precisely why they're confused were seven reads, and they were all amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergamum, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. You see, they can look at these people and they look at them and they go, they don't look like me, yet they're speaking my language. It would be like looking upon someone who is from South Africa, perhaps, speaking Portuguese. You're going, these two things don't make sense. What's going on here? You see, they see and they understand from their dialects. They've been around enough to go, these are people who are native to Israel. That they have enough of an ear to go, I think they might be Galileans actually. If you've been around the South, you know there are different types of accents, right? You have our South Carolina accent. You have the Alabama slow and sweet as molasses. You have the North Carolina where they just jibber-jabber and you don't really know what they're saying. You have different accents as you go around even the South. They're hearing that and they're going, these guys aren't from where I'm from, yet they're speaking my language. I understand them. Now, as I said earlier, these people we see represented here, Luke's just not telling us about them by accident. He's trying to make it clear that God has brought the nations to himself. He has brought the entire known world together so that people could see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus so that their lives might be transformed by the power of the gospel. Now, perhaps you're looking at this and you're asking, well, Walter, you said the Spirit calls us to worship. Tell me about how they worship. What are, what are they doing? Where does this come from? Well, verse 11, I think, tells us what the worship is consisting of. Verse 11 says, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we Hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see, as they've been gathered together, they hear these people proclaiming the good news of the gospel, the things that they have walked with Jesus and experienced. They're proclaiming the finished work of Christ upon the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. They're talking about the miracles he's done. They're telling of the change that they have experienced when they repented and believed. You see, the word here from mighty works, this is megoulias, megoulias, okay, that's in the Greek. As you look at that, you're thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Well, Pastor Tim Keller suggests that as we look at that, that we would translate that as Mega works, not mighty works, mega works. So what we're talking about is that this is the biggest word, this is the greatest thing we can think of. This is the biggest and best news you could ever want to hear. Now again, they're not talking about just general principles of the Bible. They are talking about the saving actions of God throughout history. All that he has done to save you and I. You see, they proclaim about Jesus and this incarnation where God comes to earth and becomes man. They're proclaiming about the atonement where Jesus would make the perfect final sacrifice to pay for our sin and shame so that we could have life eternal. So that we could find forgiveness. We could finally find peace, justice, and hope. He proclaims about the resurrection Jesus having power over life and death. This is why we believe God is who he says he is. Because he brought himself back from the dead. And that's a heck of a magic trick. That when you look at this, you understand God certainly has to be who he says he is. This is why we believe. You see, they're trying to make clear that we live in these specific ways. We do these certain things because we are saved not in order to find salvation. It's such a contrary call to the culture around them, around us, that we are saying we live in a way that is pure. We live in a way that is just. We live in a way that is righteous and peaceful. Not because we're trying to pursue salvation, but because we have been saved. You see, they are worshiping in a way that changes the story that people around them see. Even in here, I would have to pick a little bit with their translation of telling. Uh, other uh, different versions of the Bible as we look at verses NIV or, NIV or ESV or King James, right? There are lots of different translations. Many others actually translate it as declare, right? It's not often I have problems with the ESV. This is one because they're not just telling casually like you and I, like, hey, did you catch the Braves game last night? No, they are proclaiming before the gathered people, God is real and he has changed my life. See, this word declare is better because they're just not informing them about a new opportunity. Hey, if you live in this way, you too can find peace and righteousness and hope. No, they are saying that they know the way, truth, and life, and His name is Jesus. I also need to note that they use the word them. In the Greek, it means them. I don't know that you were expecting that, right? But the word them means them. It's a plural word referring to people over there. We would say it as, hey, all them over there. When they say them... We look at this, and really I think as we look at this section of Scripture, we usually think of as someone standing up and proclaiming a sermon, right? We, we see that later on, just a few minutes later perhaps from Peter. But rather what we see here is that there are multiple people, perhaps the full gathered body of disciples, all 120 of them, who are speaking and proclaiming the goodness of God. Maybe some of them are praying out loud before God and before the people. Maybe some of them are reading scriptures. Remember they have the Old Testament at this point. They're reading the different passages in the Old Testament that point to the coming Messiah and the fulfillment of all these promises and prophecies through Jesus. Maybe they're praising God in song, singing the Psalms themselves, telling about the goodness and glory of God. That even this idea of mighty works that we see here, it really gives us a a suggestion, a connotation as we see it used in Scripture of worship and praise. So God has moved. He has brought His Spirit upon His people. And their response is to worship and proclaim of His goodness. And so here we're in this moment and we have a worship service that is broken out before the nations. We see in verse 11 that we've got Jews and now Gentiles gathered together. People from around the world are now listening. You see, God has told His people throughout the Old Testament that we are to display the glory of God to the world and bring them together to worship Him. That's why back in Genesis chapter 12 He says to Abraham, your descendants will be innumerable. Those stars in the sky, you can't count them. You'll have more than that. The grains of sand on a stand, you can't count them because your descendants will be those from all generations that repent and believe. What we see here is the culmination of that promise to Abraham where God is saying, this gospel is going to go to the entire world and people through all generations for the rest of history proclaim the name of Jesus above all names. Now, it's important for us to look at this and understand something here. Something we have to just rest upon for a moment. We have to understand this idea that evangelism is tied to worship. Evangelism, proclaiming the gospel, is tied directly to worship. You see, we don't just share the gospel so they can understand this gospel intellectually. As if we could list enough facts... Uh, about the historicity of the Bible, about the truth of the Scriptures, as we could just list these facts, and we get enough of them, their heart will change, and they'll repent of their sin, and they'll believe. No, we are proclaiming the good news so that they can have a life transformed by the gospel. We see them transformed from sinful, selfish people who are rebelling against God into someone who is worshiping God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. With all of their life, they would worship God. This brings me to a question, one that I need us to rest upon and really wrestle with for a moment. Do you view evangelism as a time to worship? Or do you view it as a burden, as something that you just need to do? Because i found that in my own heart, in my own life, that far too often I view it as just something that I'm obligated to do. And I think if we're honest with one another, if we would confess that and take off the stained glass masquerade of I'm in a church and I've got it together, but if we were to be honest and confess with one another, you too might say, I find it to be a burden sometimes. And that's not a reflection of the message, that's a reflection of our heart. If you feel that way, would you maybe give me a head nod, right? That you feel that? I see subtle head nods, right? Like you're not at a point where you don't That's fine. But you, you, you get it. You see what we're saying. The rest of you who didn't nod, you're lying, and we know you feel the same way. Some of us are holier than you. But here's the reality. What that says is that there's a problem within us, not a problem with the message, It's clear that they looked upon this moment as an opportunity to worship through proclaiming the good news of a risen Savior. It's clear as we look through the scriptures that God views worship as an opportunity to proclaim the good news of a risen Savior. What about you and I? What about you and I? Have we approached our time of worship today as an opportunity to proclaim to the world, to demonstrate with our lives and with our voices that we believe wholeheartedly in this risen Savior? Or have we showed up content with our get out of hell free card, merely wanting to say, I was here and I gathered with the saints. You see, one of those is reflective of the goodness and glory of God. The other is the reflection of our sinful, corrupt hearts. How we can take good things that God has given us and turn them into idols before Him. Hear me say this you can make church attendance an idol. If the only reason you're here is so that you can say you've gathered with the saints, it's an idol. But if you're not here to worship God and the rest of y'all, that's fine. But if you're not here to worship God because you have been transformed by the power of the gospel, you have made this church an idol. If you are not here because you want to celebrate the goodness and glory of God, you have made things in your life an idol. Now, as we look at this, we see that the disciples have committed. They have said that we are going to put God on display. That we are here because He has filled us with His Spirit so that we could witness about Him and His glory. That we've gathered together and what we are going to do is we are going to praise Him. In the midst of the city, we are going to proclaim that God is good and He is in control. That He has come to this earth. He's lived a perfect life that you and I could not. That He died for our sins and shame. That He ascended from the grave and then ascended into heaven. That they are clearly proclaiming this message. And the only reason they are here is because they need to proclaim this message. So what is the world's response to God-centered worship? What happens? What's the result of this? Well, in verses 12 and 13, we see two responses. We see two groups of people that are responding to this message, this worship service. See, in verse 12, we see the first group. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? And in verse 13, we see the second group. But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So the first group... These are people who are amazed and a little bit perplexed. That's what the passage says, they're perplexed. Now, you probably need some understanding of those words like I did. I had to get a dictionary out to make sure I grasped what was happening here. You see, amazed is a positive word, right? This means that I'm impressed by this or I'm in awe, right? This is something that's pretty incredible to see. Yet, simultaneously, they're perplexed. It's a negative word. It means that they are troubled or they're concerned. You see, they have just seen, and they've heard the mighty works of God on display. That perhaps they were gathered near the building and they heard that wailing, that wind rushing in. Maybe they saw perhaps those tongues of fire coming down through the windows of the building. And they've gathered together to go, what on earth is happening? And then these people come out and they're telling of the work, the finished work of Jesus upon the cross in my own language when they're not from the place I'm from. You see, their response is this conviction that what I hear might be true and what I believe might be wrong. You see, they can see that God's presence is among His people and that he's living and active in his world. You see, there's power present because, and we see that, there's power present, and because we as humans have tried to write our story without God in it, we have a hole in the story. You know, Shia LaBeouf said just a few years ago, as he was talking about his life, he said, you know, I'm really struggling with things like depression and and these things, and they just weigh upon me, and, I just really feel like if I can do enough, if I can do, feel enough, if I can experience enough, that I can fill this hole that I have in my life. And, you know, I haven't found it yet, but I'm going to keep on looking because it's got to be answered. The answer that's out there that can fill this hole in my life, it's got to be there. He said this in the middle of an interview to a non believer. He's not a believer. And yet, this man who we would look upon and say is perhaps rich and famous and would have many things that the world will say bring satisfaction says, I haven't found the answer yet. There's a hole that I have, and I'm struggling because I know that it's there, but I haven't found that which will fill it. You see, what Shia LaBeouf has failed to recognize is that there is something, there is someone that will fill that hole that conveniently that hole was a cross-shaped hole in our heart that can only be filled by the spread arms of our Savior, taking His place in the rightful seat on the throne of our hearts. You see, if we're honest with one another, we have felt that same pain. Maybe you feel that same pain. We felt that conviction that there is something, there is someone greater than us who is out there and He is calling to us so that we might have that hole filled. You see, these people proclaim, what does this mean? And what they are asking is, how do I experience, how do I find this salvation that you're telling me you've received? They're recognizing that hole in their heart can only be filled by something, by someone greater than themselves, and his name is Jesus. Yet we see others who reject this same message. They scoff and they mock the disciples. You know, It says that they are filled with new wine. They think they're drunk. They think they're crazy. They think that they are just enjoying the time they have left as we all cruise down the river to death and eternal annihilation. They're saying that, hey, these guys are having a great time and they say that it's because of this Lord and Savior Jesus, but we all know. They're drunk, and they're just like us. You see, they've seen this full power and presence of God on display, and they reject it. You see, even today, just as we see the men and women in this passage, every person who is watching online or is here today will make a decision about Jesus today. You see, some of us will be in that same first group who hear this message and go, what is this message of salvation that can change who I am and make me pure and just and righteous? And yet others will scoff and mock and they'll turn away. Yet the end result is that in the wee hours of the night, the first group will wake up and will be comforted by the truth of their Savior, who's their anchor in the storm and will be with them through this life and into the next. While the second group will sit up and wonder, is this all there is? Is this all that I'm going to have? Is this what this life is really about? You see, ladies and gentlemen, I would submit to you that this life is not about the pursuit of how righteous or how just or how pure we can be. Rather, this life is about the one who created us to know him and know him intimately. His name is Jesus, and you too can know Him today. In the next few minutes, we'll have a time of, of prayer and just really silent wrestling with the truth of the Scriptures. That we'll have opportunity to repent of our sin, whatever our sin may be, right? For some of us, it's repenting of our sin for the first time because we're confessing Jesus is our Lord and Savior today. For others, it's repenting of sin and shame that we've committed, perhaps patterns of sin and shame that we walk in, but we strive every day to be free of because God is glorious and good. Any others today may be convicted of things that they have set before Jesus' idols, and they want to tear those idols off the throne and put Jesus where He belongs. We'll have time to confess those things in a few moments of silence. And then I'll close us in a prayer and our worship team will lead us in a time of worship. Proclaiming very similar words we've just said about the Spirit. Fill us, mold us, make us, break us, shape us into who you want us to be. I want to be very clear about those verses. If you're not willing to commit to letting God shape you and make you who you are, keep your mouth shut. You've got nothing to sing if you're not willing to give it all before the Lord as a blank check before Him. Those are dangerous words to sing and pray if you're not going to be willing to let him take control of your life. But my hope and my prayer is that you'll be like me and many others in this room, many others around the world today, who will boldly, clearly sing these dangerous words. Make me who you want to be, Lord. Fill me with your spirit and send me wherever you'll take me, Lord. For your name and your glory alone. Father, we come before you wrestling with this question. Who is it that sits on the throne of our heart? Is it it things that we've elevated before you that we've said that these are important to us and these are the things we value? Is it things like justice, peace and righteousness, purity and hope? Is it things of things that we enjoy, things that we have as our preferences? Or are you, Father, sitting on the throne of our hearts? Does the Lord Jesus rest as the utmost, most important thing in our lives? Father, that is the question today that we are wrestling with. And Lord, there are many things that I could say and pray to you and ask for you, but Lord, what I ask for you is perhaps the most dangerous thing that I could say or pray today. Lord, have your way in us. Have your way in us. Let in North Charleston be as in heaven, that your reign and rule would be poured out upon us in this place. That you would fill each one of us with your spirit and convict us of our sin. Lead us to repentance and let us cry out that you sit on the throne of our life. And that we want nothing more for you to do but break us, to mold us, to shape us, to turn us into the people that you desire us to be. Lord, I pray that if Satan and his his demons are working any other word in the hearts and minds of the people, I pray that you send them away. That you silence those voices and those doubts, those fears. That you ruin and wreck those idols in our hearts. Father, I pray that today, that the only thing that is on the throne of our hearts, that the only thing that we seek to exalt in this world is the name of Jesus. So Lord, have your way with us. Move us, shape us, change us so that we would be like you, Father. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.